This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Friday, last hour of a Friday show. Usually we tend to keep things uh, pretty lighthearted. And we are going to do the opposite of that this hour because of the gravity with which uh, we're going to approach a subject which requires a great deal of attention and thought. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And the thing that's amazing about the Holocaust is not only uh, how uniquely tragic and and horrific it was and how uniquely violent it was, but to me, the thing that I can never just get over is how recent it was in history. I mean, this did not happen in 2000 B.C. This didn't happen in the 1490s. This happened less than a century ago which is just astounding. How does something like that happen in modern society? Could it happen again? Why does it happen? Well, a gentleman who has explored a number of those questions and has written a book about it called How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust is uh, Dan McMillan. He is a, a man of a resume that's longer than most phone books. He is a PhD. He's a political expert. He's a former prosecutor. He's a former professor. And uh, for the purposes of our discussion today, he's the author of the book, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. Dan, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you, Frank. Thank you for the gracious introduction. Uh, Just so folks understand how you came to uh, study this subject and approach it, what sparked your interest in Holocaust studies initially? You know, I read I read a book about it when I was 12 years old in 1972, uh, The Murderers Among Us by Simon Wiesenthal. And there, were, there wasn't a lot published back then. And it, it kind of knocked me flat. And, I, you know, I couldn't explain why at the time, of course, but I've come to understand, and it took decades to really figure this out, that, what it, that really what it, that it hooked me, what it affected me, is that this was the most extreme assault on the idea that human life Individual human life has value. I mean, every war, every genocide, the killers dehumanize their victims. Human life gets cheapened. But in the Holocaust, it—I mean, the killers themselves stated, and with great pride, that an individual human life is worth nothing, and not just a, a Jewish life, a German life also. I mean, they—they they murdered something like three hundred thousand German mental patients just to save money, and. This is the only time in history that they think that this has happened. And I think it could have – it's interesting because you mentioned earlier centuries. I think this is something that actually could only have happened in the modern era, partly because um, it was the sort of – what they thought was their scientific understanding of race that allowed them to say that different ethnicities are – each ethnicity, Jews or Germans or Poles and so on, each is a separate – race with its own genetic markers, 
and some are more valuable than others. And and the fact that the that confidence and scientific certainty also helped them to come to this really horrifying belief and kind of complete moral nihilism. I, th- uh, I think a lot of people, I think everybody listening, has some basic understanding of what the Holocaust is. But the thing that I love about your book, How Could This Happen?, is that it really gets into an in-depth scholastic exploration of the how and the why. Uh, you have a chapter in the book, uh, basically, why Germany, right? And now I remember during various Arab uh, civil wars over the years, you hear a lot of people in Western media say, ah, that's just the Middle East. That's what they do out there. You can't bring civilization to the Middle East. Germany was not exactly a barbarous civilization yeah. that had a history of civil war, anarchy, and violence. Germany, uh, well, what was Germany like before the Third, the third Reich? Culturally, governmentally, what was it like? Well, you know, in a lot of ways, German society and culture was perhaps the most, the most culturally advanced, the most, in some ways, the most morally elevated, um, the most celebratory of human dignity. I mean, their ideal of education was kind of the most exalted idea. Now, the 20s, however, politically, they were very troubled because they'd been essentially an authoritarian system in the empire. The empire falls apart in the last days of World War I. And Germans, however, are very uncomfortable with democracy that gets established because it had been the Socialist Party that was the big advocate for democracy. And so for all these Germans, socialism, which they hate, is equated with democracy. As democracy gets off to a very bad footing, so the whole 20s were very unstable, and then they get clobbered by the Great Depression, and that gives Hitler his opening. But all in all, I mean, just to sort of generalize your question – Germany was, if you were to ask, this is something historians very often say, if you were to go around to anyone in Europe in, say, 1930 and say, you know, in in 10 years, a European country is going to set out to murder every Jew in Europe, which country do you think it is? Germany probably wouldn't come up. People would say Russia, probably. So why Germany? Why did it take root there? Was it the failure of the democratic system coupled with the failure of the economy and uh, allowing for for some great demagoguery? Why Germany? I think the single most important reason just is that that the democratic form of government got established so late and that that it was fragile enough to um, to give someone like Hitler an opening, I guess. But but I guess sort of digging into that a little bit deeper, um, I guess one way to, to answer your question is that um the the thinking the think the anti-semitic thinking that really directly motivated hitler and the people who supported him was this was that jews were the source of marxism you know marxism communism that's a jewish plot and and that wasn't just in germany that they believed it but it was really strong in germany cuz germany you know the last 30 years up to the war world war 1 you have an authoritarian government that's fighting off pressure for democracy, that's coming from the Socialist Party. So anti-Semitism became the chief political weapon of Germany's elite, of all the upper classes of German society to fend off democracy. This socialism is a Jewish plot. And that really kind of set up, uh, basically paved the way for the creation of, of Nazi politics. But you know, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not really I'm not approaching this quite as efficiently as I could. Hey, uh, but, uh, but what I you know, what point I want to make, Frank, though, is that 
one of the because the Holocaust has frightened us so much, and because we all want to believe that we're not capable of this. For the first, you know, fifty, sixty years after the war, you had generations of historians. Everyone is looking frantically for a way to say that this is a unique German pathology. Um, because then we can say, I'm not capable of this because I'm not German. And I guess there are reasons why this could only have happened in Germany, and yet they really don't tell us anything about German culture. They don't tell us anything about the Germans. Uh, altogether, generalizing about the Germans as a people is, I mean, it's bad to do, it's, it's, it's kind of foolish to do that about any country, but especially lame to do that about the Germans at this time because the German Germany was an especially diverse country, you know, geographically, socially, religiously, economically. That you know, it, it exists. Had only become a single country in 1871, and it developed in these different ways. So, talking about the Germans, I mean, people used to talk about. There were books titled "The German Psyche," "The German mm. Mind," "The German Character," but at the end of the day, it's a silly kind of idea because. There's no such thing as a German brain or a Chinese brain or American brain. There's a human brain. We've all got it. So I guess what I'm going with this, Frank, is that focusing, focusing, I mean, why Germany and is there something pathological about the Germans has driven like the bulk of research into German history since World War II. And yet at the end of the day, it's really kind of barking up the wrong tree. The I think a lot of folks listening have an understanding of the final casualty numbers of the yes, Holocaust, yes. and they've seen images of yes. uh, of uh, concentration camps and things of that nature. Seen a lot of great films that have depicted this, films like Schindler's List and and elsewhere. But tell me how it began. How did we go from uh, the Nazis taking over the government in Germany? to uh, the end result of six million lives plus lost. How did it start? Well, you know, initially the plan that Hitler had, and this was already something that German nationalists before World War I were thinking is we just have to neutralize Jewish influence in German society because the, the belief was the Jews weaken us as they weaken every country. They divide and conquer us by fostering Marxism, by encouraging ideas of class struggle, workers against the upper class. So we basically, we, we removed them from jobs. We kicked them out of the media. We eventually stripped them of their citizenship. By the end of the, the, end of the 30s, the, the basic policy of the government lets abuse them so badly that they want to emigrate. And they all would have emigrated. Uh, the main problem was that we and other countries didn't want to let all that many of them in. Uh, because of anti-Semitism and because of the Great Depression, you don't want competition for jobs. Anyway, what happens then is that World War I begins in 1939. The Germans conquer Poland. Suddenly they have 2 million Jews under their control instead of you know the 150,000 remaining who are German and Austrian. At that point, the forced immigration solution is just not going to work. And at that point, they begin to think, the, the policy evolves in a more genocidal direction. And they're thinking, well, well, we'll create a reservation. And yeah, this reservation in eastern Poland, probably there's not going to be enough for them to eat. A bunch of them are going to die, but it's not quite flat out genocide. Then they, they, they defeat you know, the French and British forces in 1940 in Western Europe. And suddenly they've got really, and they have influence in Southern and Eastern Europe 
And then they start thinking, you know, we could kick all the Jews out of Europe. We'll send them to Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, which is this inhospitable island. It's kind of a desert. And a lot of them are going to die. And it's kind of in steps. And then the really fatal, the real turning point, Hitler decides to invade and destroy the Soviet Union. He's wanting to do all along. And at that point, because the whole level of violence, the body count is escalating so dramatically, sort of the inhibition on killing kind of falls away completely. Also, an additional Jewish population comes under their control. And kind of in that way, then I guess what what happens there is that um, they take the argument, they tell themselves the Jews are communists, therefore they will be saboteurs behind, behind the lines of our advancing troops, and they send in these mobile shooting squads right behind the lines of the advancing German army as they invade the Soviet Union in June of 1941. And by the, by the end of July, they're basically shooting whole Jewish communities, man, woman, and child. And then from there, it further evolves. Hitler seems to have reached the decision in October uh, to, to, for what they called the final solution to the Jewish question, which is to murder every single person of Jewish ancestry on the European continent, 11 million by their count, which was an overcount. I think one thing I want to underscore about that is that every other genocide I've studied, the people who did it kind of felt like they were cornered and had to do it. Like the Turks felt threatened by the Armenians. Mm -hmm. The Rwandan Hutu felt threatened by the Tutsi, and and it wasn't irrational. Hitler and his crew did this not because they felt they had to. They did this because suddenly they saw that they could. And it wasn't out of fear. It was almost more in a meaning of joy. It was like – I am it – is, it is commensurate with my historic greatness as this great leader of Germany that I can accomplish this task that no one before has ever even thought of um, to, to forever rid the world of the threat of communism by eradicating the Jewish people. And that is, I guess, another way, a thing that is distinctive about the Holocaust. They did it because they wanted to not because they felt they had to. And we're talking with Dan McMillan, author of the book, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. We're going to try and take some of your questions throughout the hour. If you have questions, you can dial at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You alluded to the fact that uh, it wasn't just Jews that were killed during yes. the Holocaust. Uh, you mentioned mental patients. Is there anybody else that was uh, exterminated during the Holocaust that uh, people may not exactly be aware of there you know I, I think the biggest group that most people are not aware of is soviet pow's 3.3 million died in german captivity wow and and what's particularly amazing the first six months of the war the german armies advanced faster than they well they didn't advance faster but they ended up capturing two million soviet troops in the first six months of the war in the as they were advancing to moscow they hadn't expected that many prisoners. They hadn't made plans to feed them. Now, they could still have fed, fed them. They could have changed their plans, but they just decided it was more convenient, and they also didn't want to impose food rationing back in Germany, which would be back for morale. So they just decided to – they basically penned them into open enclosures out in the middle of the grassy plains, the steppe, and then just didn't feed them anything, did give them any shelter, and let them. And be, by March of the next year, all all two million were dead of starvation and exposure. But the American POWs that were captured by Germans, they didn't meet that kind oh, of no, fate. Oh no, no, no. Uh, Western, basically Western Western POWs, the death rate was about one percent, and that was pretty much 
the death rate of, say, Germans in American captivity might have been about 1%. So why such a different treatment for American POWs versus Soviet POWs? Really racial difference. It was racist thinking. Mm-hmm. The, um, the war in the West was conducted more or less during, according to Geneva Convention rules, but in the East, it was a war of extermination. It was a race war, and it was also because Hitler's plan, The reason, one of the reasons he wanted to invade, you're, you've heard the term Lebensraum probably, mm-hmm living space. And the idea was Hitler's view was... We need breathing room. Well, breathing room, living space, what it was that, you know, history, and it wasn't just Hitler thought this way. The leaders of of a lot of countries thought this way. This was the rationale behind colonial empires. History is the struggle, the Darwinian struggle for survival between races. And weak races perish or eliminated, and the stronger races flourish. Uh, and this is good for humanity. It makes it it promote it improves it's a, it's us. Yeah. Almost uh, Darwinian, fittest, Darwinian like, thinking. It is absolutely it's racial Darwinism. And Hitler's view was: we Germans, we are the finest race, but they're not enough of us, and we don't have enough resources. So the idea was: we're gonna t- we're gonna conquer all the Western Soviet Union. We're gonna kill twenty to thirty million of the people living there, and then we're gonna populate it with German farmers. Ukraine is going to be our breadbasket. We're going to have coal and iron, and our war industries, our war-making potential will be massive, and all these German farmers will breed lots of young men for the wars of the future for our armies, and we will become big enough to be invulnerable. That was the fundamental concept. And so part of that, built into that concept, was the assumption already before the invasion, you had these documents say, well, in this process, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 million Slavs are going to die out in the first year. Um, and that's another example of what I said about they decided that human life had no intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we could go back and get 10 or 15 of these guys around the table and we'd ask them, we'd be, we'd be terribly anguished. Why in heaven's name are you doing something so cruel? Dollars to donuts. They would all answer with a shrug of the shoulders. They would ask us, why not? They're just people. Uh, you know, I'm a, a student of uh, electoral politics and different yes. electoral systems, and we've had a lot of conversations off air as well as on air about uh, the nature of uh, of electoral politics. And the question I'm about to ask I, might be beyond the scope of the time that we have today, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. One of the things that, um, you know, I, I've always been an advocate of some version of proportional representation. And yeah. one of the things that opponents of proportional representation have pointed to for the last 70 years, and I believe inaccurately, is that proportional representation is what allowed the Nazis to take hold of the German government. As somebody that studied this, as somebody that looked at this, is that accurate? Did proportional representation allow Nazism to take over the government? It's You, you would definitely have to say that it's a factor. I mean, I think if Germany had a two-party system that was basically created by the kind of electoral laws that we have first past the post where there really aren't opportunities for third parties, then Germans would have been forced into maybe two major parties and sort of compromised with each other. And that's kind of what happened post-World War II. The problem was during prior to, you know, during the First Republic is that you have basically five, well, six sort of major party directions. Uh, You know, you had Catholics and then you had two flavors of conservatives um, a liberal party, you know, socialists, and then communists. And each of these party groups had kind of a distinct sort of social base, you know, in certain neighborhoods and 
associations, Catholic clubs for the Catholic Party, Socialist Party, and so on. Anyway, the proportional representation made it possible to fragment the parliament so much, it was very difficult to create a governing coalition. And at the end, I mean, the Nazis, at the end, they they got the highest vote total of any party. They still had only a third of the vote in the final elections. Um, but it was impossible to create a governing coalition out of the other parties, mm-hmm. and that's how Hitler got into power. So there's, there is truth to that, in fact. It, the um, You alluded to what happened in Rwanda and the Armenian genocide. Yes. Just in terms of body uh, count, if you were to pick the uh, second most atrocious genocide in the history of, of the world, what is the second? Well, you know, I think in some ways th- there is a, a special horror to the Rwandan genocide because it was so quick, 100 days. It was half a million victims. People often say 800,000, but that's an inaccurate account. I think the best number is, is a half a million, but that's a lot. And um, that it was people murdering their own neighbors. Um, and in fact, because you know, the, the, between Tuts, you know, Tutsi and Hutu, these were artificial categories. They really mm-hmm. basically looked alike, spoke the same language. Um, often there was a lot of intermarriage. You had people killing like their own relatives mm-hmm. uh, in this. And it was completely out in the open. And what uh, was the final casualty count of that Rwandan genocide? Rwanda, again, about a half million people. Well, half million Tutsi, yeah. It, you uh, explore the question in the book, how could this happen? And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dan McMillan. It is uh, Dan McMillan. It is uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day. You explore the question of why Hitler? Why, yes. why was Hitler able to do this? How did he uh, gain a foothold in uh, the leadership of the Nazi party? And why was he able to inflict such a historically unique brutality? This is a, this is Hitler. Here you're, you're you're touching on something that's really so important, Frank. Because it helps illustrate the incredible importance of coincidence, of happenstance, of, of bad luck in history. Uh, and because Hitler's one pr- really principal political talent was public speaking, and you can't deny it. He was electrifying. So that made him kind of the, the, a prominent leader. That's how he took over the Nazi party. He was the one who got members, got people to rallies. Um, he then gets into office, and then what happens is – really far more through dumb luck than through skill from when he hits off, gets into office in January of 33 until German armies fail to take Moscow in December of 41. He has an eight year run of spectacular successes. Uh, and I'll just name the two mm-hmm. that are most and what, but basically the effect of these successes is the German people came to believe that he was superhuman, uh, which he also came to believe himself. Uh, he came to believe his own myth, and it, it catapulted him into a position where he was able to imagine such a radical policy. But the two successes that were so powerful, first, that Germ- he comes to power, Germ- unemployment is 30 percent. It's the worst. We had 25 percent. We were the second worst, 30 percent. And within four years, they had a labor shortage. Now, the reason for this was not that Hitler understood economics. It was because he was hell-bent on taking Germany into a major war as soon as he could make the country ready. So he pumped money into armament spending um, against the advice of his economic advisors. He basically did Keynesian economics without understanding it by accident. Now, the German people had no no idea 
if they knew that he was planning on a war, they would have rejected him. Because they that just was saw the unemployment. They knew rate. their job back was mm-hmm. back, and while while French and American and British workers did not have their jobs back, and the second uh, was even more astonishing was in the spring of 1940. You know, the, the Hitler. You know, World War One begins in in September 39. Germany conquers Poland at that point. World War Two. World War Two. I'm sorry. Thank you. And France and Britain declare war against Germany as they had threatened over the invasion of Poland. But there's no fighting in the West. And then in May of 1940, the Germans invade. And everyone, the German people are terrified. Oh, my God, it's, an, it's World War I all over again. We're going to, I'm going to lose my son. I'm going to lose my brother. I'm going to lose my father, you know, and so on. And the plan that Hitler had and that his army general staff had for starting that war in the West was based on the failed plan of World War One, and it was what the Allies were expecting, and it would have probably led to a stalemate. And But what happened was, kind of in the last moment, a couple of very enterprising tank generals, Guderian and Manstein, figured out that you could get tanks through the Ardennes Forest uh, in Luxembourg and Belgium. Everyone else had thought that the Ardennes was impassable to armor, so the French and English had no defense. Mm. on the western border, but Guderian scoped out a network of logging roads, and at the last minute, Hitler had been pressing for an invasion all fall on this un, you know, this plan that would probably have failed, and it, the plan kept, the invasion kept getting postponed because of bad weather, because they wanted, they, they, which grounded the planes, and they wanted to use <laughs> the air support, which they'd pioneered, and that gave Manstein enough time to present Hitler with this creative kind of gambling risky plan and Hitler adopted it and it worked like a charm and basically they they invaded on May 10th and by May 20th the German armor had hit the English Channel they cut the French and British forces in half cut them off from their supply lines they defeated the French and British forces drove them off the continent at Dunkirk at the end of May in only six weeks of fighting and they lost only 30,000 German wow. soldiers killed. So those are the two major successes, the military success and the economic success. I mean, in, success. in 1940, that was a miracle. Sure. Because in, 19, in World War I, they fought the same enemies for four years. They lose two million men. They lose the war. Hitler could do no wrong after that. We're going to take your calls uh, in just a moment. 800-848-9222. I think we're going to forgo the $1,000 minute uh, for today <laughs> just so we have a, a little bit more uh, more time with uh, with Dan McMillan. We'll continue with that on uh, on Monday. Um, if, you want, if you have a question, I have a bunch, but if you have a question, uh, please call in 800-848-9222. The book, and we're not even scratching the surface of the really terrific sp- scholarship that uh, Dan's responsible for in this book is How Could This Happen? It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Rabbi, 
This is a uh, terrific song. Uh, this I actually know the artist responsible for this uh, pretty well. This is a song called Never Again. It is by Remedy of the Wu-Tang Killer Beats. And Remedy, who uh, used to rent an apartment from my mom. Uh, 25, 30 years ago, and I knew before he was a he you know he was a big rap star, which he has subsequently became, is a Jewish rapper, and this was his first. And I knew him as Ross, right before he was uh, uh, known as Remedy. This was his first big song. Uh, it's called Never Again, and it is a, an honest to God rap song about the Holocaust. And if you look at uh, some of the lists of um, best popular music about the Holocaust, this song is always at or near the top. It uh, it came out, I want to say, in the late 1990s, and as part of the Wu-Tang Killer Bees album, it is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. I can't recommend it enough. And it's a great way to uh, teach younger folks that might be into rap music, especially if they like Wu-Tang, uh, about some of the different aspects of the Holocaust. We're talking about the Holocaust because it is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. My guest in studio is uh, Dan McMillan. We've talked to Dan before about uh, some projects that he's working on to improve American democracy. But uh, we're talking primarily about his book, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust, which is probably the most readable scholarship uh, exploring some of the causes and the history of what went on in the Holocaust, even if you have a, uh, a, a high school education, you'll be able to understand a lot of uh, all of what's in this book, quite frankly. Uh, we're going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Dan, one quick question about yeah, World War One yeah. and its um, you know, effect on World War Two. One of the things that a lot of people have said over the years is that the reparations that Germany was yeah. saddled with. And the the fact that they had to publicly accept responsibility yeah. for World War One that not only was demoralizing for them, but it, it created such a horrible economic climate that it was going to lead to a demagogue like Hitler to take place. Is that a view that you share? Well, yes and no. I mean, the 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 war guilt clause that they had to accept that they were they and their allies were at fault for the war was deeply humiliating and as part of what enraged people about the treaty. Um, and at the time, you know, you know, economists, including John Maynard Keynes, I think it was his first book, predicted this, the reparations will cripple the German economy. As a practical matter, though, the, the pace at which they ended up having to pay the reparations, economists now say that this really did not cripple the German economy. Nonetheless, however, at the time, that was a perception. And because the new democratic government got blamed for the treaty and the loss of the war, 
you can say that that perception in that way did list, help contribute to Hitler coming to power. That answers your question. Sure. No, absolutely. It does. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, sir. Uh, two Quick two-part question, sir. Do you happen to know the numbers of Roma or gypsies who died in the Holocaust? And number two, do you agree that one reason why the six murder camps were established in Poland, we're talking Majdanek, Belzec, you know, those camps, yes. is because even the Einsatzgruppen, hardened killers, uh, just went psychologically bonkers at the constant massacres at Kamenets, Podolsk, Baba Yar, and other places, that Himmler and Heydrich were very worried about what was happening to their men. They were, they, they were getting drunk. Uh, they were alcoholics. Is that why you think that it went industrial? Uh, you know, both good questions. As far as the Roma, you know, you often call gypsies. The most common figure I've heard is about 220,000, mostly by the shooting squads. As far as what you, you, what you raise about the death camps, that was a very often stated rationale, for example, by Rudolf Hurst, the, the Auschwitz commandant, at his post-war testimony. Um, I think the main reason, though, that they established the camps is they just wanted an, an additional way to kill more quickly. Uh, it is true that some of the men in the shooting squads uh, did find the work uh, upsetting to a point, and, yeah, abusing alcohol was sort of part of their – Routine, nonetheless, basically, uh, they could have done the whole thing by shooting, and they they would have happily done it all by shooting. I think it was just, um, I mean, it did make it psychologically easier for them. It also made it quicker. It was more efficient. It was more lethal. You needed less personnel using the camps. Um, but I think the notion that the, sh- the men of the shooting squads really couldn't handle it psychologically, unfortunately, they really were cold enough. I think emotionally that actually most of them handled it pretty well. Obviously, there are millions of people in Germany at this time and uh, very few people in the leadership of the Nazi party and the Nazi government. What did most rank and file Germans that were living in the country at this time actually know about the horrors that were going on at the time of the Holocaust? You know, that's one of the most fascinating questions. I think that at a minimum – I think every German got information, got stories from <laughs> soldiers in their family who came home on leave about the mass shootings in the East. Um, probably, on the other hand, not that many Germans could understand that this was a Europe-wide process. Uh, indeed, I think even within the government, uh, I don't know how well that was – widely that was understood, not least because it was – it's nothing like that had ever been done. It was inconceivable in a way. I think one other thing I think you would also say is that in every town where there was still a Jewish population, then when it came time to deport, uh, as they called it, deportation to the east was the cover story. And the deportations took place in broad daylight. These Jews slated for deportation would carry their luggage, walk to the main train station in the town in broad daylight and board the trains to their deaths. I think their neighbors all knew that this was a death sentence. And I've had a couple of German friends whose whose relatives told them that during the war. Um, There was a ton of information about the killing in Germany uh, of all kinds, including uh, very frequent statements by the government on national radio. Uh, There's one, you know, famous statement, Robert Lyde, the national labor leader, who said, we will not stop until every Jew in Europe is annihilated and is dead. But on the other hand, uh, it's – 
it was so hard for people to really understand and believe um, that although people had a ton of information, on the other hand, how many people really process that into knowledge? It's a much smaller number, not least because it's something that people really didn't want to know and also could not mm. do anything about. 800-848-9222. Peter is in Harlem. Hello, Peter. Yes, I've known Holocaust survivors, and some of them tell me stories that when, if this is true now, uh, Hitler allowed them to leave, they refused to leave because they figured they were German. Do you have any, have any information on that? That's that's an excellent question, Peter. And, I'll hang and, up and listen, okay. And, I, and um, you know, well, it's true, first of all, that that Jewish Germans very much considered themselves German first and Jewish second, and were were very they were one hundred and fifty percent German. They were very patriotic. They identified with German culture. Germ in Germany was probably the European country where where Jews were most assimilated, uh, and where intermarriage rates with Gentiles were very high. Uh, on the other hand, really by the late thirties. The government had made conditions so brutal for German Jews that uh, pretty, I think the great bulk of them wanted to emigrate. And really what – the only reason why they didn't all get out is that we in other countries didn't want to accept them, that we, we had an immigration quota and, and this was true of every other country. There simply weren't enough countries willing to take all the, Germ- all the Jewish German refugees who wanted to get out. I know you mentioned uh, the Jews being kind of scapegoated for the, the spread of communism and Marxism. Why else were the Jews the target of Hitler's enmity? Why was he able to convince people that the Jews were the source of Germany's problems and the world prob- world's problems? Why the Jews? Well, I think, you know, I think the, the, these, Conspiracy theories that that really begin to take hold after the turn of the century, but especially after the end of World War I, about an international Jewish communist conspiracy where Jews divide and conquer every society by using Marxism to pit the classes against each other. This, in a way, is kind of an echo of the centuries-long demonization of Jews in Christian theology because you have to remember that Judaism is the parent of Christianity. It's Mm. a rival of Christianity, and – Already in the Middle Ages, um, there, both in Protestant and Catholic theology, there is really this idea that the Jews are the spawn of Satan. In fact, they often would not see the Jews. They would simply see the Jew as if it's a single impersonal mm-hmm. evil force. And I think that this long history, uh, even though it wasn't Christian anti-Semitism that motivated the killing, it paves the way. It makes people receptive to this idea that the Jews are this evil, ominous force. I think the other factor is simply the astonishing record of Jewish success in every field of endeavor. And in particular in Germany, Jews were so – had such an impressive um, presence in, in, in cultural life and in the media. Of the three major newspaper chains in Germany before World War I, uh, two were owned by Jewish, also in book publishing. And for conservatives who were battling the rise of the Socialist Party – their theory was always, well, the German workers would be happy with their life if it weren't for Jewish agitators. Mm. And the Jews used their power in the press to feed Marxism to German workers. And if we can only neutralize the Jews and their influence, then this Marxism would go away. So that's really kind of how it happened. But I mean, this belief that 
The Jews are the sponsors of Marxism. Very strong in our country. Henry Ford uh, published The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is one of these conspiracy theories in the Dearborn Gazette, serialized. And, of course, in the 50s, you know, the trial of uh, Jews. Charles Lindbergh subscribed to a lot And Charles Lindbergh was, yeah. was a vicious anti-Semite. And uh, the trial of the Rosenbergs in the early 50s. Um, for having supposedly sold atomic secrets to the Russians. That played into that narrative in a disastrous mm. way mm. for American Jews. 800-848-9222. Kathy is in the East Village. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Frank and your guest. Um, a couple days ago, I watched this PBS three-part series, and it was the United States and the Holocaust. And there was a lot of stuff. It showed from the very beginning, the first part, you know, people sort of knowing what's going on. Then in the middle part, kind of knowing what's going on. And third, how uh, responded to it. And uh, they interviewed people who survived. Uh, I just can't even imagine the fear, like just each step. And there's like footage that's just the footage that you can see now of all this. It's mind boggling, like death camps and mass graves and uh, I don't know. It's just very, um, it's very upsetting. Uh, did you happen to see that uh, documentary? Uh, I, I actually didn't, but it's it's an issue that I've studied and am familiar with, and it's a it's an interesting question. I think one one thing that is that is it's it's a very good story that bears on your question earlier, Frank, about what the Germans knew and understood. Mm. Is that Felix Frankfurter, who was a senior advisor to Franklin Roosevelt and Jewish, um, there were some. Um, resistance fighters who managed to escape from Auschwitz and make their way to America and gave a detailed firsthand report uh, to Felix Frankfurter. Um, and Felix said to, to this man, he said, I am unable to believe what you are saying. And another member of the Roosevelt administration said, Felix, you can't say to this young man that he is lying. And Frankfurter said, I did not say that he is lying. I am saying that I am unable to believe what he is saying. And this is, this is the kind of the point uh, that I was saying earlier is that there can be a ton of information about this, but the effort to completely eradicate a branch of humanity, essentially as if the Jews were a virus, because that's really how they saw the Jewish people. It's a virus. We'll stamp it out everywhere so it will never grow back. This had never been done. It was inconceivable. And so even when you're confronted with a lot of detailed information and credible firsthand reports, you still, until you actually had the post-war footage, the video, the, the bodies, it was kind of really very hard for anyone to, to fully assimilate and, and believe. Uh, I could talk with you about this for five hours, but I want to squeeze in yeah. a, a, couple <laughs> of, uh, a couple of questions before, before we run out of time. One is um, one of the things that we there was an article about a year and a half ago about all of the American monuments and statues in the United States yeah. to Nazis. Right. And a lot of them happen to be around Ukrainian Orthodox churches and oh. uh, things of that nature. I'm wondering. And th- well, this is one of the I- issues that I do take with Zelensky in his constant uh, reframing of his conflict as 
the Holocaust Part Two. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can speak to the Soviet role of the of the uh, the Soviet role in the Holocaust, either as liberators or in terms of battlers of Nazism. And I'm wondering if you could speak to what was happening in Ukraine at the time, because there's so much misinformation around these two questions now. Okay. I'm wondering if you could straighten us out on well, that. Well, I think with reference to Ukraine, one of the more important sort of episodes is the famine of 1932-33, which was effectively engineered by Stalin. Partly it was just to confiscate grain from Ukraine, um, to use the agricultural surplus to sell the grain and so on. Partly it was also to crush Ukrainian nationalism, and 3.9 million Ukrainians are believed to have starved to death. As far as the Holocaust and the war, uh, one of the most important avenues, possibilities for survival was – um, Jews who ended up in the Russian part of Poland and when the Germans invaded or before they were invaded were shipped east. Um, and it was ultimately really the only thing that the most important uh, factor or the most important group of people who brought the Holocaust to the end was the Red Army because it was the Red Army that did 90%. It was the Red Army that broke the back of the Wehrmacht that did 90% of the fighting and dying against Nazi Germany, and it was really only – the only way that the Holocaust was stopped was to overrun Germany. And that's so, still uh, – the, they, they still celebrate that in Russia to this day, at right? The Great Patriotic War, and, and one has to say, I mean, Stalin was, of course, a monster, but the contribution of the Russian people to the human future by defeating Nazism is really a great and heroic contribution. The other thing yeah. I want to ask you – and. I get calls uh, repeatedly from people that are unabashed in their anti-Semitism that will really? blame oh, the Jews uh, for everything. And by and large, sure. I don't. I try not to take the calls, but um, I do like to take them once in a while so people can still see how prevalent anti-Semitism is today. Yes. And I, I'm wondering if you can speak to Holocaust denial. Um one yeah. of the things that we see about uh, these days quite often is folks refuse to acknowledge or argue with Holocaust deniers because they don't want to give any life to their arguments. You want to give them oxygen. What is the basis of Holocaust denial and uh, and how prevalent is Holocaust denialism? Holocaust denialism is a worldwide movement with tens of millions of adherents. Um where, why is it possible? I mean, why is the whole I – mean, And what do they believe? What, do the, that the six million people really didn't die? I mean, what is the basis? I mean, I've heard I different – I think there, there are different versions of it. There are some people who say that the death count was vastly exaggerated. There are people who claim that it just didn't happen at all, that there were no gas chambers, that this is implausible. Um, and the interesting question is – but it's a fascinating question because – you know, there are no French Revolution denialists or Protestant Reformation denialists. This is the only historical event we deny. And, you know, I have my own theory, you know, and I, I think it's really – well, I think there are two reasons. One is that the causes of the event were very complex, and you need a book like mine that really gives you an overview. And frankly, most people have not had access to a kind of clear explanation. And unless you get an explanation that really lays out – you know, how these factors fell into place to make this possible, it is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. I think the other reason is simply the Holocaust frightens us. Why does it frighten us? Because it goes to the heart of really the question of how we find what, if anything, do our lives mean? 
in a in a secular age. I mean, I don't know, Frank. Are you are you a devout Catholic? Are you I identify more as an Episcopalian. Is it Episcopalian? Oh, really? Yeah. I was I was baptized I'm, Episcopalian, but I wasn't raised religious. Well, I'll put I'll put it to you this way. I mean, one of the most important problems that all of us face, even though most of us don't really think about it explicitly in our lives, is you know I you know I'm born I'm on this planet for eighty years. I'm forgotten within three generations. Does my life have meaning? You know, Tolstoy said, you know, what meaning can my life have that will not be annihilated by the death that awaits me? Now, if you if you have religious faith, you've got an answer. You know, you're 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 beautiful because you're made in the image of your creator. Your life has meaning because God put you here on earth for a purpose. But if you're someone like me who's not raised religious, you're not made in the image of your creator. You're a glorified monkey clinging to an asteroid. And your existence is an accident. And the possibility that your life is without meaning, you face it alone. Now, in practice, I think most of us, and I certainly, although I've actually had to think this through, we find meaning on a human scale by loving other people, by trying to be a good person, by treating people right, uh, by feeling that the world is a better place because I lived in it. And the Holocaust is a devastating assault on that answer mm. to this question, to this vital question, because first of all, the, these, this ruling class of this advanced society says flatly, no, who cares if you treat people right? People don't matter. And secondly, if we are capable of doing this, then how lovable are we anyway? And that, I think, I think the reason is that there's so, that people accept denial is that is exactly it. That's the nerve that this touches. That's why this is the only event that frightens us. I can't prove this, but that's my theory. Well, no, it's as good as theory as anything I've heard. The book is called How Could This Happen? Its author is Dan McMillan. Dan, we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. Be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.